episode 59 of the Walking Closer podcast. This episode is titled, Sit in the Tension. Just sit in the tension. I just wrapped up a series of podcasts collecting perspectives from different people. Uh, Really, as I was investigating, if you will, this concept of the mental visualizations we have of God that are created from a very early age in most cases. Um, And it was fascinating to me. I just absolutely love gathering different perspectives. I love to listen to different uh, perspectives and, and, and understanding people's stories and the various aspects of their stories and all you know, all the all these factors that make us who we are as individuals. And I tell you, as, as I was listening to uh, the various the people that I talked to um, multiple times, I would think, ah, that, that makes sense. Now you make a little more sense to me than you did before. Um, and uh, it's just fast. I think it's so valuable. You know, I, but I, I was really talking about this perspective of God that we have, this, this mental visualization, if you will. And I learned so much uh, from different people. I, I spoke to someone who, you know, through her journey, basically have come, has come to this place where she has this greater sense of, of God's presence with her now. Uh, she says she feels like, a, he's, he's, like he's always there, right? He's a, he's a part of her, I think she said, inside and out. He's always present. And then speaking to a different person who, you know, who came to see God in a way that transcended the biological limitations, if you will, of, of male and femaleness. And a part of understanding why they came to those conclusions had to do with uh, realizing that there were some women uh, that he, he said that might have issues with, with really— you know, connecting with God the way that men do. And I have to be honest, it's not something I've ever considered, thought about. Uh, but that idea led him down this path um, to seeing God in a different way, which is a nod to the fact that most see God as a, as, as a male figure. I mean, even myself, you know, this angry, bearded, muscular white man in the distance is how I titled uh, my episode. But you know, then I, then I spoke to someone else who, you know, I got this perspective of someone who came from the Mormon church and uh, all these barriers that were there and, you know, being catapulted beyond that to discover God's love. And then someone else who has always seen God as love. And that perspective was just reinforced over time. Then, then again, I spoke to someone else who had to work through lots of challenges of, uh, understanding how God saw them. It was a little less than less about what how they saw God and more about how they saw themselves. And uh, she felt that she actually felt the disconnect uh, as a woman. And it was like she said God has a boys club. I think is how she put it. And she was just kind of left wondering, right? Like, where, where do I fit in? And then it was this connection uh, like... Uh, with the Holy Spirit being feminine, and I've talked about this a couple of times, that uh, there's the connections like like that and others that cleared this path for her and being able to relate and feeling like she could relate to God, that there's something there for her. Um, man, just simply fascinating to you know 
listen to and to come to understand and just even hearing how people talk about God and their perspectives. Uh, man, it's so, so, so good. Absolutely love doing those things. I, I love doing that series. It was just a great, great time for me. I hope it was something that you benefited from. If you've listened, if you haven't listened to them, what do you, you need to go back and you need to listen. You need to listen to the previous episodes. Start with the angry bearded muscular white man in the distance and find your way through the next you know couple of episodes all the way to the one that's titled To Him Through Her. It's fascinating. Now, but what I want to do is I want to talk to you about maybe some of the tension that you might have felt as you listened to those episodes and you listened to how people would explain things and talked about things and the words they used. I want, I want to talk about this tension that we might feel. And uh, I think there may have been a lot of things that were said that would potentially cause some tension inside of you. When I began this journey. I said that I wanted to understand other people's perspectives of God, this image they have of God. And I said this statement, that there's no right or wrong perspective or image, because that is just simply that person's reality in that moment. Um, And there's lots of factors involved as to why that image was created. My approach wasn't from the perspective of helping people see how their image was necessarily wrong or right. There's no right or wrong perspective here on that. It literally is just that person's perspective out of their background and their journey and their experiences. Now, just simply saying that, no right or wrong perspective, maybe maybe that was something that stirred up some tension within you. Maybe you thought, no, 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 no. There has to be a right perspective, and we have to get that right. Okay. Or maybe maybe you looked at some of the titles to the episodes. Remember, I, um, if you didn't listen to them, and this is maybe this is the first time you listened to this the Walking Close podcast, uh, or maybe you skipped over some of these episodes, and you're now listening to this for the first time. I allow the people that I speak with to play a role in titling these episodes because this this was a part of their story. And so I worked with them with coming up with these these titles that would represent best represent, you know, in in as much, you know, with as much honesty their story. Cuz this is their story. This is their perspective. And uh maybe you read some of these titles and Maybe maybe there is some tension there. Maybe you wondered what's going on here. You, you maybe you read angry bearded muscular white man in the distance and maybe 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 that maybe that caused some tension within you. Maybe because that's the image that you were fed for so long and you're trying to fight against that, running from that. Or maybe is the simply fact that you hear this and you say white man, why does God always have to be white? Right? Or maybe you read that angry, bearded, muscular white man in the distance, and you're thinking, no, 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 that, that's not right. And so you feel that tension. Maybe maybe you read the title, Feminist God. Right? Feminist, what, <laughs> what clickbait is that, right? Feminist God. And maybe you started thinking about all the ways in which 
this might be wrong. How can you call God a feminist? And what kind of false you know, doctrine might this be being espoused in this, in this podcast, on this episode, right? Maybe that caused some tension within you, and maybe you felt that. Maybe you felt the tension when you read the title, Good, Good Father. Good, Good Father. Maybe you felt that because you don't see God as Father. You have a hard time seeing God as Father or even as a good Father. Maybe, maybe you got daddy issues, and when you have a difficult time seeing God as a Father. Oh, maybe, maybe it was a title, To Him Through Her. Through her. Well, I love this one. I love it. To Him Through Her. Remember, it, it's a, the idea that she felt so disconnected from God, but it was, wasn't until she began to see some of the more feminine qualities or the feminine aspects or in the language that's used. And specifically, you know, I like to use the example of the Holy Spirit. She saw those things and she saw a way to connect. That, wow, she could relate to God because he's not just this, just, just this male image and he doesn't just have a boys club. You know, she's not just a second rate or second class, you know, creation, if you will. And man, I just absolutely love, love, love that title, To Him Through Her. Maybe you read that and you're wondering, who's the her? (laughs) What's going on here? What kind of language is this, right? Uh, Maybe you felt tension from there. Oh, maybe you felt tension by some of the topics that we discussed, some things that were mentioned, right? You Maybe you felt we were stirring the pot on certain issues, things that we should not be talking about, or maybe maybe there's some triggers there for you, and you began to feel this tension. Maybe, maybe you felt the tension uh, because of some of the conclusions that people came to, right, and how God was described. You heard words maybe like, energy and essence and did that bother you do you do you feel the tension there so that i think there might have been a lot of things that a lot of reasons especially when it comes to us talking about things like this that cause us to feel this tension inside of us and what do we do with that what happens with this tension, right? We, we feel uncomfortable. It's, it's something we feel, right? And, but it alerts our defenses. And when the, it's, it's something we feel when the certainty we like to hold on to is challenged, especially when it comes to matters like this, right? Maybe this tension happens when the stories we tell ourselves about reality and what is. When those things are challenged, why we feel this tension. When the things we believe are true are challenged, right? We we could feel this this tension. Like anytime it seems, especially today, anytime we talk about politics or religion, right? We feel the tension. Just the words themselves. Take the word religion. That word itself can be filled with such tension. Such tension. You have people who are saying down with religion, Christians who are opposed to religion. You have those who just cannot see the, the need for religion. 
And in all those instances, my question is, how are you defining the word religion? Because the religion seems to be this thing that causes this tension within people and they feel it and then they just, they have to release the tension, right? With politics and religion, just simply using the words, we feel that. You know, as a side note, I, I, I was doing some research on the word religion, what it means, where it came from, the etymology, it's a bit fuzzy, but there's a Latin word, that, and this might help you when you you feel the tension in religion, right, and, 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 and how people talk about religion and what's good and what's not, but it's, it might be helpful to redefine the word and how we're using it. This is how I like to use the word, religion. Our English word comes from this Latin word, which means to bind or to connect. It's to rebind or reconnect. Religion is about helping to put the pieces back together. It's about restoring something that was missing. By the way, that's why James says religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. But you notice part of that is the idea of helping to put the pieces back together, to restore something that was missing, broken, to help, to help bring things back in alignment in some way, shape, or form. Maybe that's a better way to use the term religion. Right? Religion is something that we do for others. And so maybe if you redefine the word that way, the tension won't be there. But nevertheless, anytime you say the word religion, there seems to be this, this tension that we feel and feeling like we have to either defend it or to attack it. But when we feel the tension, we always seek, seems to be, we seek ways to relieve it. We don't like it. Sometimes, right, we, 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 we take it out on other people. We lash out on the person that's challenging us, on challenging our certainties or, or our, our beliefs, right? Sometimes we just try to ignore it altogether. And we say things in our mind like that person's just stupid or they're ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. And as a result, it's easy for us to justify in our minds why we feel the way we feel or the beliefs or the things that are being challenged. And when we do this, though, we miss this opportunity to actually see maybe some of the absurdities in our own conclusions. We miss the opportunity to see where we ourselves might be able to obtain a better perspective. Just maybe. Sometimes I think we just need to sit in the tension for a while and not just look for ways to relieve it. Yeah, it's uncomfortable and it's challenging, but, but the tension you're feeling oftentimes says way more about you than the other person. See, we feel the pressure and we push back and we put the pressure on other people. But the tension we are feeling is an indicator about ourselves and can tell us something about ourselves. Think about it. Let's just say, for example, that you are certain, right? You have confidence in what you believe about God. Then, then someone comes along and says something about God that 
really challenges your perspective and and your response is to immediately get defensive and you get aggressive and you even you get to push back like like it's a threat. And that, that now when I see this or when I feel this, it tells me that well, you probably are not really all that confident in what you believe about God. In fact, what you say you believe may have less to do with God and more to do with what you believe about yourself and your need to have the right answer, to be right. Your response, see, has way more to do with you than it does God. And if I am confident in what I believe about God, I won't see other perspectives as threats. A challenge to what I believe won't be a threat, but I'll see it as an opportunity an opportunity to maybe gain another perspective or to even even ask the question am i right could i be possibly could i possibly be wrong but too often times as i've seen it experienced that it, it's more like a threat we don't like to think that we're wrong i've i've seen this stuff played out with the church over and over again. Of course, it, it's in all other facets of life and other areas and arenas, sure, but man, I have seen this stuff played out with the church over and over again over the years. People feel threatened by other people's beliefs, and I don't, I understand where it's coming from, but I guess I'm just in a different place now where I see just the ridiculousness of it. As an example, I have a friend, he uh, made a decision a long time ago that he was going to trust God with his children. That is, whether or not they were actually going to have children. So what this means is that they're not doing, taking any preventative measures, so to speak. And as a result, well, I think he has seven, seven kids. And they're there because they, he and his wife both decided that they're just going to trust God, that if they are to have children, if it's, that they're supposed to have a child, if it's meant to be, they're just going to trust God. And as a result, they have seven kids, okay? Now, that's their approach to having a family. Now, some people might hear his story and push back because they feel some tension, right? They might be thinking in their minds, well, okay, so he's trusting God as to whether or not they're going to get pregnant or not, have children. And we feel this tension and might be thinking, well, what does that say about me, that I don't trust God? Right? They receive it like a rebuke, like, because I don't do that, and you do that, what does that say about me? That I, But the reality is, that shouldn't necessarily be the case. In fact, he's not even saying that that's what everybody should do. He's not even saying that that is for everybody. But he just simply believes that that is, is his calling, is what he is supposed to do, is what he needs to do in his relationship with God. But we might take that as a threat and that we're wrong if we ourselves don't take the same approach and therefore we begin to think in our minds all the various things that we think to justify ourselves at any given moment. Now, if we would just sit in that tension when we feel it for just a little while and wrestle with what we're feeling, we, we actually might learn some things about ourselves and come out on the other end with a fresh perspective. So when you feel that tension, see it as a gut check. 
Why, why do I feel this way? Why did that make me feel this way? Why do I react that way? What is going on with me? What does this say about me? What, what belief is being challenged? Was, was there a personal value being violated? What is going on here? Like ask these questions. What is going on with me? What is happening here? And you may just find out, well, there's some things going on with you that might need to change. And that's okay. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. So I want to, I want to give you a few things to think about when it comes to this tension that we feel, specifically over biblical matters, right? Over over biblical matters. Now, even just talking about this brings up some tension, maybe for some of you. But two things that I want to I want to leave you with here. First, tension is inevitable. It's simply inevitable. It's, it's, it's just simply a reality. It's a reality, right? Um, tension's going to be there. We're going, going to feel it. And it's something that we need to be okay with. There's the, the story of Jesus when he is going to first send out his disciples kind of on a, like a little mini mission trip, if you will. They're still going to be tethered. He's going to send them out and have them come back in. See, up to this point, uh, Jesus, as a rabbi, he's more of an itinerant rabbi. He's just moving around from place to place. And, you know, rabbis had this particular way of doing things, and they had disciples who were trying to learn how the rabbi did things. And the rabbi would choose disciples that he had confidence in, to one day be able to do what he did the way that he did it, right? And the rabbi, um, that was the point. That was the purpose. The rabbi would have you as his student because he believed you could do what he does. And so there's this training that's going on. And up to this point in Matthew chapter 9, you have Jesus going about doing things, and the disciples are following him, observing, if you will, learning, seeing how he interacts and responds. And no doubt there are times, there are things, and lots of stuff that goes on that we don't know anything about. Questions and conversations that they had with Jesus. But what we do know, or at least what was written down for us, like, in, for instance, in Matthew 9, verse 35, Jesus went through all of the cities and villages. He's in Galilee, and he's teaching in their synagogues, and he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and he's healing every disease and every affliction. And those are some key phrases there, the gospel of the kingdom, and he's healing disease and afflictions. In other words, it's business as usual. But this word kingdom, yeah, we have a tendency to read this stuff and maybe not even give it a second thought because this language, this language is something we're accustomed to seeing and understanding in a certain way. But in Jesus' day, the concept of a kingdom, it was a loaded word. It's electrical. It's volatile. The message is subversive. See, the concept of the kingdom was of a kingdom was very political. And to talk about a kingdom coming was subversive. 
And Jesus is talking about this kingdom that is near. And he's doing his work inside of another kingdom. In fact, it's the Herodian kingdom, specifically Herod Antipas, who ruled over Galilee. Herod was a powerful man, and he did not hesitate to take out anyone he felt like was a threat to him. In fact, it was so bad at one point. You, yeah, yeah. In Luke 13, you had Pharisees. I love this. Pharisees come to Jesus. Pharisees come to Jesus. And they're not trying to they're not trying to back him up into a corner. In fact, they come on friendly terms and they told him to leave because Herod wanted to kill him. The Pharisees are warning Jesus to get out of town because Herod wants you dead. Why does Herod want him dead? Well, the message that Jesus was preaching, another kingdom, would have been seen as a threat. See, typically the thought of the kingdom coming would have carried with it concepts of war, expansion, destruction, oppression, greed, power, taking control. Someone was trying to reorder things in such a way that it would benefit them, and they had the power, the armies, the resources, the money to reorder the world in such a way that it best suit them. And all these people that Jesus is ministering to would be caught up in the middle. Who knows what would happen? They would lose their land, family. They themselves might die. So Jesus is talking about a new kingdom. And the thought of that would have been maybe tantalizing for some. And maybe others who understood how the empire works, they may not have wanted anything to do with it. Jesus says there's a better way. See, in Jesus' message of the kingdom coming, it would be a better way, a better way of living, a being, of responding, a better lens, a better perspective, a new ordering of things. But yet people would have felt the tension, the tension in this message. And so Jesus being this one-man show, being a genuinely compassionate person, demonstrating love that people matter. He attracts some attention. And in verse 36, Matthew gives us a window into the heart of Jesus, what's going on inside of him as he goes about. He saw the crowds and he had compassion. Something deep inside of him is stirred up. And these, these, some older translations, the phrases are bowels yearned. Bowels were, seat, were seen as the seat of love and pity. There was this overwhelming wave of compassion Jesus felt for them because they were harassed. The word literally means flay, mango. It will habitually distressed and helpless. This is an interesting word because it literally means something that is thrown down, to fling with a quick toss, a deliberate hurl. The example I like to give is when you see someone abusing an animal, and eventually that animal gives up and doesn't fight and just takes it, and a person takes that animal and throws it, flings it, and it hits the ground, and it just lays there. 
The New American Standard uses the word dispirited. These people were dispirited, like this internal prostration. And Jesus sees them, and he's filled with compassion. And he sees them because they're helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. They were confused. Lots of, lots of imagery here, lots of symbolism in here. Jesus is surrounded by people who had no, no one to guide or care for them. They, <laughs> they were oppressed, oppressed by disease and hunger. And, and, and man, just in this particular area in the, Galilee, you know, just high taxation. It would be very difficult to feed your family. There's a reason why there's tons of people always looking after Jesus because he could feed the people. Why were they so hungry? Well, we know that there was enough food. But somebody was choking down the supply, controlling, controlling the resources that would best in such a way that would best suit them. So people were having a very difficult time taking care of themselves and their families. Some people were oppressed because of who they were among their people, tax collectors, women, people who were to be considered unholy sinners, not as good as the religious elite, oppressed because of sin, feeling like they had no hope couldn't measure up, maybe even those who felt trapped. And what's the point? My question is, was, is the world any different today? And the answer would be no. People are still oppressed by these various things. And Jesus felt this tension. The people were living in the tension. The disciples are seeing the tension and no doubt feeling and maybe even experiencing some of it themselves and even talking about the oppressed and when we when we talk about these concepts that we see in scripture some people like to bring out the current circumstances in our own country and just by me saying that now you might feel that tension when we talk about things that are going on at the border you might feel that tension when you might we might talk about our government and how certain things are playing out and how that might be affecting others as these decisions are being made and the results trickle down. Maybe that makes you feel this tension about, what am I going to say? The question is, are you willing to be challenged? Jesus felt the tension. He saw it. Then he says to his disciples, I love this, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send. This is an interesting word because this word send is a very strong word. It literally means to expel something, to drive something. It represents this urgent need for something to do something that it may not want to do. In other words, there might be some resistance here. So pray that the Lord of the harvest will send forth workers into the harvest, which is the idea of the owner of a field who had the power to hire and send out more workers if needed, would see the need and do it. And Jesus says this knowing what is, what is needed and what was to come. And then this is exactly what Jesus does. Think about this. There's some tension. And there's about to be a whole lot of tension because the disciples are about to be sent out. They're about to be let loose, and now they're going to do the things that they've seen their rabbi do, but their rabbi won't be by their side. They're no longer going to be just onlookers. They are now going to physically actually participate and do the very things that they saw their rabbi do. 
Certainly, as Jesus is going to send them out and begin to have this discussion with them, there's going to be some internal resistance, some doubt. So therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest will send, expel, to drive. No doubt there will be some doubt within each of them. And so Jesus, Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority, literally power to act, the power of choice, of influence, and a privilege. And he gave them this power over unclean spirits to cast them out until they every disease and every affliction. The idea is that they, they had the ability now to act, to choose to have influence over, the privilege to do something as they saw fit. And the authority to will this power was given to them. And, and so from some sense, they would need to look inside of themselves to will this power. It's not something that came literally. It didn't originate with them. It was given to them. And they themselves would have to look inside of themselves in order to choose. This would be an extremely important part of their training, of helping others to come into their own. And these 12, Jesus sent out instructing them, it's like this before they go, they get this pre-game speech. And he tells them to go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. My question is, why would they? Well, Jesus took them there. He took them there to the Samaritans in John 4. He took them to the Gentiles. Mark 5, the Gerasenes. Ooh, tension. You can imagine the tension they felt. <laughs> As Jesus is telling them, first of all, they're going to go do this, right? And so maybe there's this peak intention, and Jesus says, but don't go anywhere among the Gentiles or into the town of Samaritan. See, don't you know that they probably have felt the tension that was there when Jesus, when they went through the town of the Samaritans, or when Jesus took them to the Gerasenes, Mark 5. The, the Gerasenes, this is an interesting story. On the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, it's, this place is a part of the Decapolis. It's the Tin City region area. This is Tin cities established by or uh, after Alexander the Great conquered this region. He and he had a desire, right, to, to push a Greek worldview on people. Ooh, can you imagine the tension there? They, which would include things like emperor worship, you know, the concepts of the gymnasium, the worshiping the Greek gods and the goddesses. Oh, yeah, imagine being a Jew. First century Jewish history, there was, a, there was a massacre that happened in this area before the events of, of, of Mark, Mark's story. The disciples would have been alive and would have known and been familiar with what happened. In fact, Josephus tells us about us in Josephus in War 4, Chapter 9. Essentially, everything was destroyed. Even villages around slaughtered. Everyone, everything was burnt. Everything was destroyed. It was horrible. It was even worse than... These, this place knew and felt oppression more than any other place. The loss and the trauma. And Jesus takes them there. Imagine the tension they knew how empire worked. Ooh, and they saw it, and they felt it. But Jesus says, don't go there. <laughs> you can imagine there might have been some release of tension at that point. 
But then he says, but go rather to the lost sheep, literally the lost ones, emphasis on the lost, of the house of Israel, the lost ones, the harassed and the helpless, the sheep without a shepherd ones, referring to all of Israel, wandering, hoping, waiting. You have those who who have given up hope, right? And those who are still waiting, those who think that things aren't going to get any better. And you have those who are blaming other people for the current situation. Ooh, that's tension. Ten. Imagine this, even among the lost ones, the harassed and helpless, the sheep without a shepherd, you have Pharisees. Is it possible for you to see the Pharisees or other religious leaders as being the harassed and helpless ones? Yeah, the tension. When you, when you read about the Pharisees, the Pharisees are the bad ones, right? They're the, the awful ones. They're the ones that nobody wants to be like. They're, even, they, they are, they're easy targets for us. But we fail to realize that the way we think about the Pharisees oftentimes illustrates how much we're like them. Pharisees. And we're like them in more than one way. Imagine being a Pharisee feeling harassed by your own traditions and the constant rigidness, being tired, constantly having to keep up appearances, this constant thoughts or even fears of not living up to a certain standard, feeling helpless because you feel trapped in the system that you're stuck in and, and you're fearful of leaving that system because of mentors and family and history and emotional ties. Oh, can you feel the tension? Yeah. Pharisees, the lost ones, the harassed and helpless ones, part of the sheep without a shepherd ones. Yeah, can you see them that way? You feel that tension? But Jesus takes his disciples and he says, we're going to start with something that's familiar, right? Eventually you will go to the Gentiles, Matthew 28, 19, but that's a much larger stage. Right now it's just giving them a small stage. The bigger stage is going to be later, right? Luke says this. After the resurrection, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and everywhere else. But for now, for now, let's keep the tension just local. And then he says, go and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It has come near. Oh, the tension that this might have caused for some. He says, go heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You receive without pay, give without Pay, acquire, gain, obtain. This is a word acquire. It's interesting because it's typically a word that's used to talk about someone who is acquiring a spouse, marrying a wife or husband. But it says, don't go and grab and obtain or procure gold or silver or copper for your belts, these girdles or sashes, which function like a belt. They would store valuables like a pocket. Don't go grab a bag for your journey, he says, right? These other sacks for food or other provisions or two tunics or sandals or a staff. For the laborer deserves his food. In other words, expect to be taken care of. Ah, yeah, but do you want to you wanna feel some tension? So Matthew says that Jesus says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You receive without pay, give without pay. Okay. 
But then he says, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belt, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. Yet Mark says it this way, Mark 6, 8 through 9, he charged them to take nothing for their journey ex- except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to put on two tunics. Okay. But then Luke says that Jesus said, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and don't even have two tunics of peace. Huh. Seems like they might be saying some different things here. Does that bring tension up for you? Uh, The fact that I am just briefly giving some attention to this. The fact that there might be some sense of a contradiction to what's being said by each writer, maybe? Do you feel that tension? Well, I don't feel a tension because I'm not going to try to make the text do something that it's not intended to do. I think you have three different perspectives, and they're all just relating the same concept. Don't be weighed down by extra provisions. The way you are right now, you are ready. You may not realize it, but all the things that you have been experiencing have trained you for this moment. You are ready the way you are right now. And he says, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy. In other words, who is hospitable, okay? I don't like the word worthy there. I think all Jesus is saying, go find who is hospitable in that town and stay there until you depart. And this has to, this is there's a cultural thing that's happening here. And as you enter the house, greet it. Shalom. Peace be to you. This was a blessing or wish prayer meant to communicate peace. It, meant, it communicated lots of ideas. Uh, this is a richness to this. And I'm not going to get into this at this point, but man, there's this whole social protocol with which we're just mostly unfamiliar with. The social protocol determine who you greeted and how you greeted them based on the circumstances. And if Jesus says, this is what you do in this sense, and if the house is worthy, in other words, if they're receptive or hospitable, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, if they don't recept, they're not receptive, they're not hospitable, then you just let your peace return back to you. You don't have to force it on anyone. Just let it return back to you. I don't think there's any hostility here. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. This right here sometimes might be seen as just this act of disgust. I don't agree with that. I don't believe that at all. Sure, this is a symbolic act, and it may have a reference to some say this practice that some Jews had uh, when they would leave a Gentile area before stepping into the Jewish lands or a holy land, right? They would shake the dust of their feet to not contaminate it. I think it's just simply symbolic of saying we've been here and now we're moving on. Uh, in fact, Luke 10, 10 through 11, Luke says that Jesus says, whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to your feet, we wipe off against you yet, uh, in protest against you. And yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And I think that that is the point. Hey, we came and now it's time to go. The kingdom is here. It doesn't mean they have no hope. It doesn't mean that they won't have another chance. It doesn't mean anything other than, hey, we're here. We've done this. The kingdom has come near. 
we're not called to be the savior of the world. It's time to move on. And then verse 15 says, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So there is some tension here. Sodom and Gomorrah were seen as the epitome of sinfulness and and were used as examples over and over again by the prophets, right? The prophets had a just habit of applying the imagery of Sodom into Israel. And to the Jews, Sodom was just the ultimate picture of judgment. And the picture is that simply this, they are rejecting a greater opportunity than Sodom had. Truly I say to you, it would be more bearable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Why? Well, they're having an opportunity that Sodom Sodom didn't have. And then what follows seems to be excerpts. Oh, here's some tension for you. What follows seems to be some excerpts from later teachings. Uh, in fact, a lot of this comes from Luke 21 that Matthew seems to insert here. Matthew, Matthew basically takes a lot of the things, if not most of the things that we know that Jesus said to his disciples about the things that they're going to experience when they go out, when they, they fulfill their mission uh, or trying to fulfill their mission. Um, and Matthew takes all those things and kind of puts it in one place. Okay. Matthew's not so much concerned about chronology. And in verse 16, he says, Behold, I, emphatic, I and only I, am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. <laughs> so be, a, be wise as serpents, right? What does that remind you of? Genesis 3. Be crafty. Be wise as serpents. Be keen, sharp. Uh, Psalm says, Psalmist uses this, this idea in Psalm 58, 4 and 5, keen or sharp like a cobra that stops up its ears so it doesn't hear the voice of the charmer. So be crafty, be cunning, be slick, be smooth, but also be innocent, literally unmixed as doves. This is a common proverbial phrase here. Israelites often saw themselves as sheep among wolves or Gentiles. So the question is, what does this mean? I'll be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Well, it's all about how you maneuver the terrain, how you conduct yourself in such a way that you can get in and get out without unnecessary provocation. Be prudent and crafty without sacrificing integrity, but also don't allow what you face to turn you bitter or revengeful. Why? Well, look at verse 17. There are going to be these men, literally the men, pointing back to the wolves, for they will deliver you over to courts. Every local town had a, its own court of justice, and they're going to flog you in their synagogues, which would oftentimes be a, because it was a public place for an assembly. They would exercise discipline and uh, sometimes even you know, flog you and throw you out of the synagogue. Ah, but that's not all, Jesus says. It gets worse. Now, can you stop right here and imagine the tension that you might be feeling as a disciple listening to this this stuff that Jesus says, I'm going to send you out, and this may be what you experience. And he says, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Now, the thought of a Jew betraying a fellow Jew to Gentiles was horrendous, right? But the thought of standing before a council and having to defend yourself would seem overwhelming. But Jesus says all this opens a door to something greater that is in bearing witness. So when they delivered you over, he says, do not be anxious 
See, there's some tension. Jesus begins to soften. Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. (laughs) For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Ooh, it echoes verse 1 where he says, I am going to give you authority. You've been freely given. It's been freely given to you in verse 8. This is something that doesn't originate with you, but is given to you. So don't be anxious. Trust. Have faith. You'll be taken care of. Oh, but (laughs) get verse 21 of Matthew 10. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children arise against parents and have them put to death. How how could this be? Why would people act this way? Like it's a bit bit extreme, don't you think, Jesus? Yeah, but this is quite normal in an honor-shame society. And he says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Ooh, what's in a name? But the one who endures to the end will be saved. See, who you are and what you do will be so tied to the name. Name, character, image, who and what Jesus represents. And they, as his disciples, are going to go forth representing something, an image that others are going to resist, to fight against. Don't take it personal, but you represent something I don't like. And therefore... You are going to experience some tension. He says, when they persecute you, verse 23, in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Ooh, Son of Man. Here's a phrase for you. There's this debate about what Jesus might actually mean by this. What specific event or time is he referring to? Some... Say he's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Some say the Resurrection, Pentecost, Fall of Jerusalem. Yeah, then there's tension in trying to determine (laughs) and and argue your point of which which event, if any of these, is Jesus talking about. Well, I think it's simple. I think it's just a statement that reflects the reason why they should flee to the next town, to be as wise as serpents. No one has time to go before things escalate beyond return, right? Because the scope of what they're going to be doing is so big, don't get caught up for too long in one area. Okay? Don't get caught up too long in one area. It's so big and it's enormous that you will not have covered enough ground or this certain amount of ground before this particular event happens, whatever that event might be. And so the point is, hey, know when to get in and when to get out. You're going to feel the tension. He's helping them understand how to be intentional in their responses. And then he, then he just makes these statements. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. Now, that would be what you would expect, right? A disciple is not above his teacher. Exactly. And a servant is not above his master. You would never expect the servant to ever rise above the master in status. No, that's not something that you would expect. He says, it is enough or satisfactory for the disciple to be like, not above, his teacher, and the servant like 
his master. This is just a simple fact of how it is. And since this is the case, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, this would be a term of reproach, right? We oftentimes say he's referring to Satan. But he says, if this is what they do to the master of the house, how much more will they malign, speak ill of those of his household? Yeah, see, the idea of the house and how the house is run, who owns the house, who is the genesis of the house, who started the house, and those servants within the house represented the vision and the mission and, and the one who, who owned the house and how they wanted things to be ordered and run and structured. And the disciples are like the servants in the house. And they represent the master of the house. And then Jesus says, so have no fear of them. <laughs> like what? What do you mean so? Typically when you see the word so or therefore, you think that the thing that he is about to say was implicitly stated beforehand. But it wasn't. And so today we would say it this way. Don't fear them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Or we might say, nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. So, or therefore, have no fear of them. Right? Ooh. <laughs> The tension, Jesus now addresses the tension or the response to the tension, right? Have no fear of them, which may be the emotional response we have when we feel the tension, right? Now, what's interesting about this is what's he talking about? Who's he talking about? Well, this comes from Luke 12, and there's this warning that Jesus gives his disciples to beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And and, and, and so I think the point of this, as Matthew throws this into the section, has to do with this emotional response, fear. Fear is an emotion that alerts us, right, to this presence of danger. There's these responses, these biochemical responses and the emotional response. We have the biochemical responses, which include sweating and rapid heartbeats and adrenaline levels rising, right? And they all make us extremely alert. And then that's, that's the fight or flight responses, right? And then there's the emotional side of things, which is highly personalized because it can be a positive or negative thing, right? Uh, it just all depends on how we experience it. I mean, it's very personal. It's very subjective. But fear is real, and how people react is real. And they're going to be in real situations, feel real tension, where fear may run the day, right? Jesus seems to say, in the midst of these situations, remember there is something much bigger at play here. Keep this in mind. In the midst of tension, there is something much bigger here. Come, uh, something bigger at play here. And I believe this statement is in light of the Pharisees, specifically those who had the power, those who had ordered things in such a way that it would benefit them, those who profess one way but in reality or another. And to be able to deal with this, it takes a certain mindset, right? For one, one must have for the truth and the desire for truth to override those who are in power and to face this and to deal with this. And that mindset is what empowers you to speak up and to proclaim, right? That mindset is what allows you to be less concerned about what they will do to you. And so I think Jesus just simply says, don't be intimidated. Eventually, everything is going to be out in the open. 
and everyone will know how things really are. And especially if this is in light of the Pharisees, don't look at their threats as something to be that concerned about. You know what you're getting yourself into. You know what it's really like. You know what they're really like and what's really going on. They're probably feeling the tension too. And Jesus says in verse 27, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered of the ear, perceiving with the mind, the faculty of understanding and knowing. Proclaim that on the housetops. I like the message. It says, so don't hesitate to go public now. And don't and do not fear those. He's ooh, this is are you ready to feel some more tension? Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Okay. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Huh. This is interesting, especially considering how this verse is used. Um, some people actually use this verse to talk about annihilation, because that's what it seems to be talking about. Fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And because this statement is made, there are some who believe that this is exactly what's going to happen. Well, <laughs> here's some tension for you. Do not fear those who kill the body. This is what I believe Jesus is saying. They have certain power. And this is the best they can do. So he says, don't fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. That is, those people can only do so much. But there are someone who is more powerful than them. And they can destroy both the soul and body in hell. They can bring about annihilation. But does that mean that they will? No, the one who has the power to do this, he says, is the one who is going to take care of you. That's why he says in verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And so when you go to verse 28, he simply says this, there are those who can do bodily harm, but remember this, there's someone who can do way more than that. Doesn't mean he will do it. No, in fact, it's not what he's going to do. What he's going to do is that is the one who's going to take care of you, which is why he says, are not to sparrow, small bird, food for the poor. In the marketplace, these birds would be on these skewers, sold for a penny. And Jesus says, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from, literally, without one's will or intervention. From your father, your father stands with them. And if God care, God's care extends to such humble creatures, what should you think of God's love? Especially in light of what they might do to you. He says, but even the hairs of your hair, the, ha the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. <laughs> Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. 
Mm, this is the understanding that can help shape the mindset emboldened to proclaim, regardless of the circumstances. See, Jesus isn't saying, hey, you have to go and do this. Oh, yeah, and by the way, these are some of the things you're going to face. And if you screw up or you don't go and do this, this is what's going to happen to you. You will be annihilated in hell. Do we actually think that Jesus is trying to instill more fear into them than the fear that they are already experiencing and that they will experience. Nah, he's saying, listen, they can do this, but there's someone who could do more than that, and that one will be taking care of you. Ah, so fear not. Therefore, ooh, did you feel any tension with that? And so Jesus says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, this Aramaic idiom confesses in me, indicates the sense of unity with the one who stands for him, represents a state of oneness. So everyone who acknowledges, stands with me, I, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies the own rejects, it deals with this social breach. You were standing with me, and now you have separated yourself. And as a result, Jesus says, I cannot stand with you because you're not standing with me. I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. It's the idea that we were standing together, and you moved. You moved. You disowned. You rejected. You caused the breach. And as a result, I can't. The oneness is no longer there. So there's this sense that I stand with you as long as you want me to. I am there with you. Whoever acknowledges me in the face of these threats, these hurling, the hurling of, of insults, and even, even in the face of physical harm, I stand with you, and you stand with me. Then, oh, oh, oh. If, as if that's not enough. The tension just keeps rising. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. You can imagine why he would say this at this point, right? All the tension, all the like, is this, this? So this is what we have to look forward to. Like You're telling me this is what it's going to be like. Like this is what's going to happen? Yeah. Listen, don't think I've come to bring peace peace, literally cast peace to the earth. Oh, I've come, not come to bring peace, but a sword. Ooh, there's some tension there because in other places he says, yeah, my peace, I've come to bring my peace. There's this picture of this, this time of peace where it's expected, but then all of a sudden there's this thrust of the sword. Something happens and it's defying all expectations. Ooh, what could that be? Yeah, it has everything to do with the family ties. The family ties that are everything to them. Their household, their name. So yeah, Jesus Jesus says there's going to be this tension in and what you're doing and this some of this tensions might come from your family. Have you ever wondered what might cause, 
What might cause father to be against son, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, where a person's enemies will be their family? Like, how could they respond this way? What could actually lead to this sort of tension? This is where we'll pick up next time on the Walking Closer Podcast.